Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 184th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. I go by JAG. Uh, today, I am uh, really excited about our guest, but in case you're wondering who I am, I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like animated videos, even AI animated videos, graphic novels, and even music. Uh, today, we are joined by returning guest, Greg Lukianoff. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you uh, who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, uh, you can go ahead and use the chat function to start typing in your questions and we will get to as many of them as we can. Uh, Greg is an attorney, New York Times bestselling author and the president and CEO of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, uh, a fantastic nonprofit dedicated to fighting for free speech on college campuses and beyond, as we will discuss today. He previously joined us back in February of 2021 to discuss his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which explored how safetyism and other cultural trends uh, were contributing to a younger generation of uh, kids who were more fragile, less resilient, more intolerant of differing views. Greg returns today to talk about his timely sequel, The Canceling of the American Mind, co-authored with Ricky Schlott, which presents a comprehensive view of uh, cancel culture and the dangers that it poses to all Americans. Greg, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so when you first joined us in this space, it was well before Elon Musk took over at Twitter, now X, uh, after which he turned over internal documents to independent journalists like Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi, culminating in the publication of the Twitter files at the beginning of this year. Were you surprised at what they revealed and uh, what do you think the repercussions will be for less government intervention and perhaps a more supportive free speech culture on social media? I was not particularly surprised um, to, to find that there was a lot of what's called in the law governmental jawboning, pr pressuring um, private companies to do the censorship that the government wants on its behalf, essentially. Um, and uh, I, I, I would have been more surprised if there was less of it, you know, um, so it, it was probably about as bad as I feared. Um, when it came to uh, the Missouri v. Biden decision, which actually makes the, in my opinion, correct argument, you know, that, that there are First Amendment limitations on how much the government can hound companies um, to do, do their censorship for them. Um, it was weird to, to, to see some other people in the First Amendment space somehow talk about this as like a limitation on the power of government to talk to corporations. And it's it's like, no, like <laughs> it, this is the biggest public sphere that's ever been created. And the idea that the, there's nothing wrong from a First Amendment uh, perspective of the government, you know, leaning on the on these groups to censor opinions they don't like is 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 crazy and completely against uh, the ideals of the First Amendment. Uh, how has X been doing since, from your perspective, thoughts on, uh, for example, the recent reinstatement of Alex Jones on the platform? Yeah, I, I feel like um, when it came to, I was a little surprised at the reinstatement of Alex Jones, because there are um, 
categories of unprotected speech that that we don't disagree with, and one of them is defamation. I actually kind of expected Alex to uh, Jones to be to stay off of of Twitter. But there are a lot of other people who are brought back who never should have been, you know, canceled um, uh, in, in in the first place. So I think that um, uh, Elon is actually doing a, a pretty good job for free speech overall. Um, but the uh, one of the, the you know one of the things that has been really quite stunning is the ongoing sort of campaign against him and against the platform um, in a way that's not you don't see directed at uh tiktok for example like the, the, just the the weird kind of and forgive the expression elite hatred for e- elon musk is um kind of bizarre to me yes well it's uh to those of us at the atlas society um it's like something out of the pages of atlas shrugged I mean, somebody who is an inventor an innovator um who is attracting the ire of the powerful and uh, they seem hell bent on trying to uh, to stop him, but we're, we're rooting for him. Now, and we're also rooting for this book, uh, your latest, The Canceling of the American Mind. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book, particularly uh, with regards to how you came to discover and collaborate with your co-author, Ricky Schlott. Yeah, um, it, it's a it, it's a interesting story. So um, during COVID, uh, I was contacted by this um, young journalist. I think then either nineteen or twenty, um, who I'd heard a lot about. Uh, she she uh, started writing for Reason and the New York Post, and everybody's like, "This young woman, you know, writes as well or better than people, you know, twice her age." Um, so I already, I already knew who she was, you know, uh, because she'd created some buzz within fire. Cause sometimes we try to identify and bring on young talent. You know, we, we tried to get Coleman Hughes, for example, to join fire early on. We got him a little bit too late. Um, but, uh, I, she, and then she ended up contacting me to talk about, um, her, her theory that maybe COVID could be the challenge that sort of uncoddles young people. What, when she, what she meant by that was that essentially in coddling the American mind, we talk about how we're just not um, exposing kids to enough challenges. We're engaged in, like you said, safetyism, uh, and it's harmful to kids. But uh, she thought maybe the challenge of COVID could actually be something that leads to, you know, a, a self of, a sense of self-actualization away from safetyism could be really empowering for kids who could see themselves, you know, get get through a challenge and, and, and fly in colors. Um, now she jokes that she thinks that, uh, in retrospect, that was probably wildly, uh, optimistic. Um, I still think there are probably kids out there who really did, you know, um, uh, uh, rise to the challenge, feel, feel like that there was, you know, th- real things to overcome, but you're not really seeing that reflected on campus. Uh, basically it, uh, on campus and, and a lot of, uh, elite society, it, it definitely seemed like it was a victory, uh, for safetyism. But um, at, after we talked about that article, I very quickly offered her a fellowship at FIRE to, to, to do research and writing. And after less than a year writing with, working with her, I was like, okay, you know what? I want to do a follow-up a follow to Coddling the American Mind. And Coddling the American Mind was disproportionately about um, the challenges faced by Gen Z young, woman, young women. So given, you know, the, the two authors of the original book are both Gen X men, um, having a Gen Z young woman to collaborate with, well, it seemed like great. We could get, actually get some on the ground, kind of like tell us this from your perspective. But 
as we were getting ready to write the book, I couldn't believe that I was still hearing ideologues trying to claim that cancel culture was a hoax, that it didn't exist. I mean, I recently read something where apparently people who uh, talk about cancel culture are neo-Confederates and, of course, fascist. Um, and I was like, no, this is insane. I, I've been working on campuses um, uh, for 22 years, been defending free speech beyond campus uh, as well. And it's not just the cancel culture is real. It's something we're going to be studying in 100 years because it, it I, I've seen nothing like the, the level of censorship um, on campus that I've seen since about 2017 and particularly accelerating around 2014. Um, and we cannot find a moment uh, in history outside of the 1930s, not even the 1950s, in which this many professors have been you know, fired for their uh, for their speech. So the, the three things that we wanted to do in canceling was establish that cancel culture is real um, and it's happening at a, at a historic scale, a scale um, that, that everybody should understand, that cancel culture should be thought of as only the meanest way of winning arguments without persuading anybody. Um, and we try to situate it in this whole kind of rhetorical approach um, of, of ways to avoid actually having to argue uh, with your uh, with your opponent on you know, fair grounds to just kind of jump over to ad hominem attacks. And then we spent about a third of the book talking about potential solutions. Yeah, and we're going to get to some of those, but something you just said uh, sparked a question for me when you were talking about young women. On Monday of this week, I gave a speech at Turning Point, Girls Gone Woke, Why Young Women Need Ayn Rand. And I started by contrasting how a recent survey of 12th grade boys showed that twice as many were uh, likely to identify as uh, conservative as progressive and that only 13% of 12th grade boys identified as progressive. Then, you know, we see that Gen Z overall is uh, still trending um, more progressive. I think it's about 42 to 33%. The answer comes when you look at the polling data for 12th grade girls, um, that only 12% of 12th grade girls um, identify as conservative and as, uh, yeah, as conservative. And, you know, kind of using that as maybe a proxy for um, thinking about some of these um, trends in terms of woke and wanting to have safe spaces and wanting to uh, limit what other people can say, people will come back and they will ask me, why is it, what's the phenomenon that's driving such different kind of orientations among uh, young women and, and uh, young boys? And I'm not sure I really have um, the answer. I mean, given that, you know, you said 2017, so that to an extent you could see this as um, maybe a reaction to to Trump or somehow that that was a phenomenon. I think the abortion issue plays uh, a role um, as well as, I don't know, maybe girls being more empathetic or compassionate and, and seeing that this is how they're going to protect the marginalized. But you've been studying this for yeah. a really yeah. long time and, 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 you know, knee deep in the data. What are any of your theories about what might be driving that kind of divergence? You know, um, in order to use an overly fancy term, I think a lot of um, the dysfunction we see in society today is 
um, internet-enabled runaway homophily. Um, and what homophily means is like people finding other like people and, and going to people who are like them. And I feel like um, we'd already been there. There was a great book by Bill Bishop called The Big Sort um, that came out maybe 15 years ago that explained how increasingly we live in communities that are more segregated by politics and by class. Um, and that's in the physical world. When you add that to the fact that we're more segregated in terms of uh, politics in, in the virtual world, and you can surround yourself with layer after layer after layer of people who agree with you or, or even more radical in their politics than you are, it leads to this, this sort of spiraling off in, in, uh, in group polarization sort of directions. So I think that's one of the things that's happening in the country um, in, in, in large uh, and Again, social media is one of the reasons why it's accelerating. It's not the it's not the reason why it's happening. Period, because we were trending towards this kind of isolation and group polarization uh, well before the existence of, of social media. But social media sped it up, and it did create some new phenomena. Things like weird sites like Tum Tumblr, which were very much kind of uh, progressive sites, but at the same time that had um, a lot of discussion of. Uh, basically victimhood uh, of sort of uh, relating to people through your pain and your, in, in some cases, they would argue oppression. And that can be something that I can understand. It can feel sort of empowering, particularly for those of us who have struggled with depression. But the problem is like when you get a group of, you know, depressives all talking to other depressives, guess what? They tend to get more depressed. Uh, but I, I, and I think that one thing that is fascinating, and you were alluding to it, is the bifurcation and politics between men and women is getting more and more severe. That more and more young men self-identify as conservative, more and more young women self-identify as liberal or very liberal um, or progressive. Um, and the, the, the data that really, it didn't exactly shock me. Like the, there were things that came out of coddling the American mind that I wish we'd been wrong about. Like we saw a... Um, mental health disaster on the horizon way back in 2014, because our argument in coddling was essentially we're teaching young people the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. And, and particularly in the sort of campus version of progressivism, you know, which has a lot of doom and gloom about the future. It has a lot of everyone's out to get you. It has a lot of guilt, um, in, internalized guilt baked into it. But all, you know, um, uh, particularly uh, 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 effective and, and to some degree seductive for women who, who are trying to care about marginalized people. They, they, they're trying to be empathetic. But unfortunately, what they're being taught is a formula for being alienated, angry, alone, depressed. Um, so I think that this uh, this bifurcation of uh, male and female politics, you know, um, is something that is going to continue to get worse. And um, and particularly when you look at this data about them not wanting to date each other, it makes me wonder about like the future <laughs> of, of, of the American family. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely really striking. And, you know, when you talk about their learning these lessons for being bitter and angry and isolated, um, that also shows up in surveys of uh, adult women who identify on the far left. Um, versus those that are more moderate the, or considered the, the self-described very liberal women, you know, and, and, uh, even among millennials, it's like more than half of them have, uh, that report that they've been told that they have some kind of mental disorder by their doctor. Yeah. Um, well, so in the book, Canceling of the American Mind, uh, one of the things I was most interested in um, 
running the Outland Society, obviously we're interested in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you go back and explore a little bit um, how postmodernism might have paved the way for cancel culture. Uh, for example, in the book, you point to Herbert Marcuse's influential mm-hmm. 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance, as helping to usher in a new campus culture in which those on the liberal left felt justified in using any means necessary to shut down their ideological adversaries. Would you help unpack that a bit for us? Sure. Yeah, uh, because everyone knows that the um, campus free speech movement began in Berkeley in 1964. What uh, what wasn't as well known until fairly recently when people were pointing out how influential this uh, particular um, uh, Marxist thinker was, um, there was an article published by Herbert Marcuse, who was, you know, considered the the guru of the new left. He, um, he was sort of like a, a, a someone trying to take Marx's ideas, but update them to a situation in which the proletarians actually didn't tend to like intellectuals. And sort of he tried to reorient um, the left into one that was uh, re- less about the proletariat, more about um, uh, about intellectuals and educated people. Um, in alliance with, and this is these are his words, um, uh, ghetto populations. Um, the, the idea of kind of like intellectuals joining with the, with the, uh, in, in their opinion, the oppressed together to, to create a new faction that would kind of replace the proletariat. And repressive tolerance is not an impressive th- thing to read. And people, people, I've I've heard a lot about Marcuse being some kind of great writer. I, I'm mystified by this assertion. Because repressive tolerance is really just making the argument that, well, you know, like people like me are good. You know, people like Herbert Marcuse thinks that they're good and people um, who agree with him are good. But there's the regressive right and the the, the legion of people who are so-called conservatives um, who are so bad and so regressive that we need state power to, suppr- to, to suppress them to, in order to achieve our truly free society, our truly equal society. It's all this Orwellian kind of uh, use of language to talk about. So you're talking about an authoritarian nightmare and you're trying to sell it as greater human freedom. Um, and that's that was a normal tactic of the, uh, of the totalitarian utopians of the 20th century. Um, not a creative idea, uh, a, a very old idea that, that it's essentially the philosopher kings should be in charge of what you're allowed to say or think. Um, and, uh, and it was taken seriously, though, on, on, on the left. Uh, th- there was another faction of the left that you know, that um, people like Nadine Strawson, and for that matter, I, come from, that was very much more sort of left libertarian, like pro-free speech, pro-freedom, pro pro-rights, pro pro-bill of rights, all this kind of stuff. And that seemed to be winning, you know, in the large society for most of my life. And this kind of splinter that started with Herbert Marcuse and then brought in people like Richard Delgado and the founders of critical race theory, um, they really glommed on to the idea of of what I derisively refer to as enlightened censorship or so-called enlightened censorship, um, that even by the mid-1980s, um, uh, campuses were already passing speech codes in order to uh, police you know, racist and sexist speech, which really could be anything they just disagreed with. Uh, these got defeated in courts of law from 19, uh, 1989 through 1995. And there was a sense that political correctness was this weird moment, you know, on campus in which off campus, most people thought that this was ridiculous um, and it was inappropriate and that free speech was essential to campuses. And by 95, there was a sense of kind of like, oh, well, okay, this is a joke. This is past us. You know, the, the speech codes have been um, uh, defeated. 
But that's not at all what happened. Uh, the, the administrators actually held on to those speech codes. But when, when I started FIRE in 2001, when we did the research, which we finally completed in 2006, 2007, we found about 79% of schools had speech codes that were just as unconstitutional, in some cases verbatim, the ones that got shot down in court in the 1980s and 90s. So a lot of my career, I was trying to explain, it's like, guys, like it, it's it's bad on campus. Like the, 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 these, these problems didn't go away. They actually metastasized. It became part of the administrative state um, at these universities. Uh, but people really started to pay attention to there being something wrong on campus when uh, a new population of students showed up who were much, pro, much more pro cancel culture, much more pro going after professors or their fellow students for saying things they didn't like. And we're still living in this era of the uh, un, the, the troubling alliance between, you know, anti-liberal, um, anti-free speech um students and and administrators working together to create a disaster for academic freedom and free speech on campus. So we've got a lot of questions coming in and uh, I'm going to turn to those in a moment, but um, when you were talking about mental health and, and uh, particularly how you detailed in the coddling of the American mind, how you learned cognitive behavioral therapy to, uh, to, to get a different orientation that was more hopeful and that was more practical and that was more realistic actually. Um, one of the case studies from the canceling of the American mind that really hit home with me was psychotherapy. Uh, on a personal front, one of the main reasons I stopped seeing my own psychotherapist here in Malibu was I felt her ideology was consistently oh. informing her feedback on the issues that I raised. Um, I'm not sure whether it, it kind of comforted me or alarmed me to learn that this situation was a lot more common than I might have thought but uh, would love if you could tell us a little bit about what you found. Oh, man. Yeah, I would say that probably the most depressing chapter in the book is about um, uh, wokeness um, or uh, actually I prefer Tim, Ur Tim Urban's term, social justice fundamentalism, <laughs> uh, making its way into psychotherapy um, and about students actually being taught to intervene during sessions with your patients if they have problematic beliefs and try to correct their beliefs. Now, I mean, that by itself is, is nuts. That is totalitarian. That is utterly inappropriate. Um, and also talking to people who are currently getting their clinical, um, uh, clinical uh, uh, psychology doctorates, you know, telling me that when they talk, uh, one of the things that students are the most frightened of is discovering that their patient might be a Trump supporter or might be a conservative. Um, and really hand-wringing about what do you do in that circumstance. And of course, the correct response should be you treat them with compassion. You treat them to the best of your ability. Like, well, what are we even talking about here? But I've heard, you know, um, uh, even more stories since the, the book came out about these moments when uh, psychotherapists will intervene to remind you, for example, of your white privilege or to tell um, Camille Foster, uh, who, who's a, 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 a Black American, uh, that maybe his problems actually come from his internalized racism. And this is, again, a disaster because I, 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 what led me on the journey of coddling the American mind was getting so depressed largely because of the culture war back in 2007 and being in it all the time. 
um, that, uh, you know, I, I saw, I was seeing a therapist back in uh, 2007, um, and I came very close to killing myself in 2007. And I shudder to think what would have happened if I'd shown up one day and my therapist decided to lecture me on on my problematic views and on my white privilege when I was, you know, in a in a depressive spiral. So yeah, th th that's one of the most distressing chapters of the book. And that chapter, by the way, could easily be its own uh, its own book because every day I, I learn more dispiriting things about the uh, the entire field. All right, let's get a few questions in here on X. Uh, Sternam asks, what would you say about recent comments among conservatives, which seem to be a complete 180 on the topic of free speech? Well, actually, this book has a lot to say about yep. that. So um, talk about sort of the cancel culture of the right and how it's been evolving and, and even some of the censorship envy that you discussed. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, I'm realistic about human nature. So I'm, I, although I want everyone to be great on free speech, I don't always expect everyone to be. So I'm not shocked when people on any side of the spectrum end up being pro-censorship. You know, I, I wish they weren't, um, but I will call them out anytime they are. So we spent about three chapters talking about um, uh, cancel culture on the right. We talk about some of the, uh, what in my opinion, quite foolish moves coming out of, say, the, the Florida legislature. There was one called the Stop Woke Act um, that came that uh, um, that came out of Florida that was an attempt to sort of ban the teaching of of CRT. And to give you an example of like what they actually had to argue in court was that under this law, you could uh, have a professor. Def, uh, oppose, make a point of opposing academic freedom or make an argument against, uh, I'm sorry, make uh, uh, make an argument against affirmative action, but they wouldn't be allowed to support affirmative action. And, and it's like, okay, I'm sorry, you don't have to be a First Amendment lawyer to know that you just lost your case. That's called viewpoint discrimination. It's not constitutional, nor should it be. Um, so we defeated that, uh, that in court. Uh, we knew it was unconstitutional and the judge called it positively dystopian. Now, I'm frustrated on that about that on multiple levels because I think it kind of derailed a lot of the useful energy um, for higher education reform, which in my opinion is really, really necessary, but instead created um, you know, a situation where uh, a academics could argue rightfully that, that academic freedom was under attack from the right. Uh, but it was, you know, I do remind people it was, to, uh, the, to our knowledge, there's only one you know, threat to uh, curricular uh, freedom in higher ed that's been passed. And so far, uh, so far, we've defeated it. Um, right now, uh, you know, I think that there are conservatives who are great on free speech. You know, people people like Robbie George uh, has been principled, you know, uh, 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 David French. You know, uh, there are a lot of people I know who have been great on free speech. Um, who are on the right. There are other people who believe in uh, are, are exercise the kind of typical um, impulse, which is free speech for me, but not for thee, that essentially they get free speech when it's their ox being gored, but when it's the other side's ox being gored, they enjoy it. And, you know, and sometimes they're saying it's like, okay, well, you know, tables are turned now, now I'm going to take advantage of it. And that's not the way, like, we, we, we want to stop the seesaw of I get to censor you, you get to censor me. We want the whole thing to stop, not just change the political valence of it. All right. Um, our friend on Facebook, Zach Carter, has a question uh, which uh, anticipates one of mine, uh, which is about which campuses have the most egregious 
speech code. So um, Zach, you are going to love this resource that they have developed over at FIRE, their, um, their free speech rankings for uh, campuses. So we'll put that link in there. But yeah, um, I know my alma mater is at the very bottom of, of the uh, the list in terms of having um, the most restrictive free speech, although um, Claudine Gay seems to have discovered a newfound respect for free speech. So uh, talk a little bit about the rankings, when they started, what goes into them. It looks like an enormous uh, amount of research, you know, what the criteria are. Yeah, um, so I'm very proud of the rankings. Um, Coddling of the American Mind was sort of a bit of a proof of concept that our uh, shop that was uh, largely dominated by constitutional lawyers um, really needed more social scientists, more statisticians, more psychologists on staff in order to do really meaningful research. Uh, I mean, I, I uh, when we were writing Coddling, Pamela Paretsky was my um, uh, was, was my chief researcher. She was great to work with, but that was basically, it was like me pretending to be a social scientist. I'm just a constitutional lawyer um, and, you know, getting a, a little bit of help. But because we were able to reach so many people with that book, it led to the creation of a larger, uh, more professionalized research department. And we've been able to bring in, you know, rock stars like Sean Stevens, for example, to the team, um, who's, you know, uh, if you study like political polarization on campus and beyond, you, you, you've read his work. And every year we've been trying to expand and improve the campus free speech ranking. And this year we have the most accurate version of it so far. And what I mean by accurate is it took us uh, a while to develop the largest database on professor cancellation ever um, uh, ever assembled. Uh, same thing with student cancellations, same thing with deplatforming, and same thing with speech codes. Speech codes was the one that we had, you know, going back substantially further. That was the first, you know, th thing that we got. Add to that the largest survey of student opinion ever conducted. And we factor all these 13 different factors in a variety of ways. And, uh, to give a, a picture that goes beyond just if you have a bad speech code. And Harvard finished dead last. They got a negative 10.69. Nobody had ever gotten a negative score. And because you get negatives when you, you know, allow for deep platforming or allow professors to be fired or, you know, fa facilitate illiberalism. Um, and uh, Harvard finished dead last. Penn finished second to last. Um, well, so I saw it, that. It was rich, you know, during right. the anti-Semitism hearings to hear them suddenly act like they'd all been like these are schools that have been great on free speech when it's like, I'm sorry, that just isn't true. Um, and McGill uh, stepped down from Penn. And even though there's concern and rightfully concerned that the message that some schools could be taking from uh, McGill stepping down was clamped down on free speech more. Um, the day before, two days before she actually stepped down, she said, you know what? I was wrong during the hearings. We're going to consider delinking um, our policies from constitutional standards. And it was just like, okay, <laughs> this has already been the case. You, you've already given administrators way too much power to police speech, and they're doing it all the time, and they're doing it oftentimes against conservatives, but not, not exclusively. Um, this is the this is the what you've been doing uh, for, for ages, which is one of the reasons why canceling of the American mind coming out right when it did was such a useful thing to have out there, because it's like, look, look at what a disaster this uh, this has actually been. 
Um, so, her, you know, we take her stepping down as a, a, a step in the right direction, particularly because the Penn alumni came out with a vision statement for what the future of Penn should look like. And it's fantastic on free speech, on intellectual diversity, on getting rid of ideology, debureaucratizing, all these things that campuses desperately need. All right. Um, some questions along similar lines. Uh, Jackson Sinclair on Facebook asks, if we look at things over a big time span, is the U.S. becoming more free speech oriented or less? Uh, also, Kingfisher21 on YouTube asks, what has been the biggest setback to free speech on campuses? Um, Georgie Alexopoulos on Facebook, what is the general sentiment among Americans in regard to the current state of free speech? It doesn't seem to be something addressed much outside of this space. So mm -hmm. yeah, maybe taking a step back at the um, historical span. Uh, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting in uh, the book that I didn't realize that um, even though we had the First Amendment, it, it really didn't gain traction. It wasn't really um, enforced and, and taken seriously uh, for a while. Yeah. So, oh, so um, trying to figure out which one, uh, which one to begin with here. What, what, what do I think the biggest setback yeah. for free speech on campus? The biggest setback, uh, yeah. kind of evolving attitudes about yeah. free speech. Do we have more? free speech today than we did say, yeah. you know, in the fifties or that kind of thing. This, this is a major, uh, you know, point in canceling the American mind is about the evolution of our attitudes about free speech. Um, and we make a distinction in the book that I think is very important for people to know and understand, um, which is between free speech law and free speech culture. Um, and free speech law in the United States right now is very strong. The First Amendment uh, is very strongly interpreted. But why? It's because those the lawyers currently interpreting it were largely educated during a time in which free speech culture was very strong. The idea that everyone is entitled to their opinion, um, that uh, you're um, like just like Mill pointed out, in order to censor, you're basically saying you're all knowing um, all, all of these ideas that that um, uh, we grew up with, people my age grew up with, uh, embodied in sayings like everyone's entitled to their opinion, to each their own, you know, not for that matter, not my cup of tea, don't judge a book by its cover. All of these ideas um, that my co-author, by the way, who's, who's 23, almost never heard um, uh, are, they've kind of gone by the wayside, replaced with a, a kind of um, uh, a very invasive kind of notion that we have to root out and destroy hate speech and misinformation and disinformation, which are, of course, all excuses for massive government power over freedom of speech. So I would say the law is very strong. The culture is in trouble and the law will not stay in good shape as long as the culture of free speech um, is in trouble. And that's one of the major messages of the book. As far as developments that have been a major hindrance to uh, to, uh, to free speech, uh, campuses becoming hyper-bureaucratized and losing all their viewpoint diversity is one of the reasons why we're in this mess right now. And mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine any way to dig out of this that doesn't involve, you know, massively de-bureaucratizing universities. 
And for that matter, you know, having entirely new institutions um, that are that don't drift in this, you know, purely ideological uh, uh, direction. Yeah, that was another interesting aspect in the book was talking about how what percentage of students at elite colleges are some combination of uh, legacy students, mm -hmm. uh, children of administrators. Yep. I mean, that was shocking to me that in a way, this is just this self-perpetuating um, nepotism machine where yep. uh, administrators are having their children, you know, get into these schools. And that, that just seems completely corrupt. It, it, it does. It, it, I think that legacy admissions and, and the, the practice of, you know, professors getting to send their kids to the schools that they teach at, um, I think they make the sort of bargain in higher ed today all that much more corrupt. And I think it leads to um, there, there's a there, there's a book called Poison Ivy uh, by Evan Mandry. It, it takes, you know, it comes from much more sort of like a, a left leaning perspective, but it makes an argument that I'm very sympathetic to, which is which is a class one, because, um, I you know, I I. Uh, went to Stanford for law school. Um, and that was a culture shift because I didn't grow up with money <laughs> um, and getting plugged in. But I always like appreciated the fact that, you know, Stanford was the kind of place that me, that I could get into um, and that my best friend to this day from Stanford, who was a carpenter for 10 years uh, before Stanford could get into. But then when you look at the data, it's like for every working class kid like me, there, you know, it's an another several hundred kids who get to stay in the in the highest the socioeconomic class. So, uh, and I think that one of the reasons why people aren't just giving up on Harvard and Penn is because they still kind of want their kids to go there. And I think that this is unhealthy to American society. I think it is kind of a corrupt bargain because I think I, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if, if what um, if, if we imagine that some of these massive donors to Harvard etc don't at least partially have in their head oh well I can get my kids my grandkids my friends kids uh, you know in there or at least it will help me get them in there if I'm a massive donor to them so I I, I think the skepticism of particularly elite higher education is warranted um, and it's one of the reasons why I bring up you know, experimental projects like University of Austin um, uh, to, to everybody yeah. who listen, because we, we we don't just need one experiment like that. We need a thousand. I had uh, Pano Canelos on the show, I think it's two weeks ago, and excited to learn that they are going to be welcoming their founding yes. class over at the University of um, Austin. So uh, that was that was super exciting. Um you know, we talked a bit about your very even-handed uh, treatment in the book about kind of the cancel culture of the left and of the right. But, you know, in a lot of the polling data I've seen uh, suggests that those on the left are far more likely to support free speech, far, far more likely to support things like speech codes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, take a, a more expansive view of what constitutes hate speech. Yep. Am I yep. missing something on no, that? No, you're, you're not. And 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 that's what, what I call the slow motion train wreck in the book, that essentially it was a very intentional effort to get, um, you know, uh, people uh, who, who uh, to get older liberals, you know, who were good on free speech to be replaced with younger progressives who are not. Um, and mm -hmm. when you look at the polling, 
uh, people on the left who are above, say, 45 actually still are quite good on free speech. Uh, that's also, of course, true true on the right as well. And as you get 45 mm -hmm. and older, they tend to get better and better, both on the right and the left. Uh, millennials, um, unfortunately, you know, which is about 45 to 30, eh, um, we, we, we call them the, you know, the into deepables, uh, in, in mm -hmm. our research that millennials on the left are, you know, too comfortable with, uh, with, with, with censorship, not all of them, of course. Um, but th that's troubling. And then that's a trend we, that we saw coming when it comes to, um, people on the left younger than 30. Uh, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag, partially because they haven't really been taught a lot about free speech. So mm -hmm. we think they're the, we call them the reachables. So a big part of what we were trying to do, uh, so FIRE launched an expansion in 2022. Um, we changed from being the foundation for individual rights in education to being the foundation for individual rights and expression with the goal of reaching well beyond campus to promote not just First Amendment, but free speech um, and free speech culture. And the and what we needed to do was create what we call sometimes a free speech movement or a free speech army um, of a million uh, supporters of free speech. And a big part of the goal was to make sure that it wasn't just all people on the right, because mm -hmm. people on the right, you know, do poll at this point more, uh, much better on freedom of speech. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stay that way, but that but that's the moment with the, that that we're in. Um, and. In creating, like, and we thought we thought we'd need three years to make this one million person army. We're only about a year and a half into the expansion, and we're already at over eight hundred thousand people. And we actually have a pretty close to even number of people on the left and the right. Because if it's just on the right, that then it just the movement can be dismissed when it's when it's genuinely bipartisan. But of course, that means that a lot of the people that we're bringing over are are are, are older. Uh, liberals, but as as long as we uh, and that they're the uh, the younger, and we're trying to do our best to reach some of the younger people to explain some of these concepts that nobody's bothered to teach them about free speech. Interesting. I'm going to dive into some more audience questions, but first, uh, one of the strongest arguments uh, that I saw in in your book for uh, fostering a free speech culture was about how censorship and canceling increases polarization. This is also something that I talked to Eric Kaufman, author oh, yeah. of White Shift, um, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, when you restrict the bounds of, of polite speech, when, when people have dissenting views on, say, transgenderism or uh, what's the optimal pace of immigration, and you start to... Uh, demonize and stigmatize those voices with all kinds of, you know, this phobic and that phobic that they don't magically change their minds. So, right. uh, you know, talk, talk a little bit about that, um, as you explained in uh, the book. Yeah. So th there's this very well, um, one of the interesting things about my career and one of the reasons why I'm so thankful to FIRE's board is they, they, they let me sometimes do things that don't immediately uh, strike people as like, is that really, you know, as much about the First Amendment? And my, and I obviously I have an intense interest in social psychology. Um, and that's one of the reasons why me and, me and John Haidt are friends. That's why we wrote a book about social psychology together. Um, but there are, but one thing that's interesting about being specialized in kind of two different fields is that in constitutional law, there's this idea that you don't want to have censorship because it will um, push people underground and it will fester. Now, that's a good argument, but, uh, but not 
as persuasively made as I think it should be if you actually understood what group polarization is in social psychology. And group polarization is a pretty common sense thing that, that if you go to a group of, it, it, you know, well, I'm sure this happens sometimes at Atlas Society events is that when a, a bunch of you know, objectivists talk to each other, you come away feeling, you know, kind of yay team. And this happens <laughs> and this happens for everybody is essentially if you go if you get together and you have a conversation with like minded people, you, know, um, you tend to leave that meeting a little bit more to that in that direction. And this is a very reliable. Yeah. yeah, it's a very reliable finding that essentially if you take, you know, uh, 12 people, you have 12 people, you know, six on the left and six, uh, six on the right. You pull them before what their political opinions are, but then you have them go talk about them with people just on their side. They come back much more radicalized in that, uh, that, that direction. So that's really well established. But what people miss is that that's what censorship does as well. Because censorship, like you said, doesn't change people's minds. It just goes, you know what? It's too risky um, for me to talk to someone who might disagree with me. Like the, the, I might get, you know, an, on campus, honestly, you might get reported to the bias-related incident program. So because this is the policy here, I'm just going to talk to people who already agree with me. And that sends, sends uh, group polarization spiraling off. And we have some really interesting data um, in canceling the American mind, showing that people who are kicked off Twitter, for uh, for example, you know, um, for uh, in 2017, for some of the pro-Trump statements, and uh, uh, that they went to other platforms where they got much more radicalized. So, to me, it, it's obvious that um, uh, that uh, group that the group polarization would take over when you have censorship. I think this is exactly what's happened in in Europe uh, to a degree. That essentially, you know, I, I was on the Bill Maher show. Um, and talking about uh, how bad anti-Semitism has gotten in France, for example. And it's like, yeah, because you banned uh, anti-Semitic speech, I think going back in the 90s, what does that do? That means basically it's telling your entire population that anti-Semites should only talk to other anti-Semites. Um, mm. and, it, and it's like, yeah. well, of course it's going to get worse under those circumstances. And yeah, it has, well, by the way, and by the, by the numbers, uh, the uh, anti-Semitism was worse in France in in the nineties than it was in the United States, but now it's much much worse. Well, some of their immigration patterns also might have something to to do with that. Yeah. Probably. Um, okay, these are two great questions on Instagram. Rachel Zelli is asking about the college rankings, and could you explain more about the warning schools? like Hillsdale and Pepperdine. Yeah, the warning schools, it means something a lot less per, uh, pernicious than pe people think. Hillsdale's objected to be called a warning school, but I don't think, th I think they're misunderstanding what it means to be a warning school. Hillsdale does not have uh, strong promises of freedom of speech in its policies. And that means if you get in trouble at Hillsdale, you're not going to have any legal re uh, for your speech. You're not really going to have any legal recourse. Whereas if you were at a school that had strong promises of free speech, even a private school, you could actually say that they violated my contract. So the only warning is the idea that you won't have legal recourse um, if your speech is violated a school that doesn't have strong promises. The other schools that that um, uh, obviously have to have free speech protections are public universities, which are directly bound by the First Amendment. And also, by the way, non-sectarian schools in um in California. Now, 
As far as the way Hillsdale scores otherwise, though, um, in, in our policies, they do phenomenally. Like uh, among schools that don't promise freedom of speech, they they get incredibly high ratings for ability to talk across lines of difference, to have debates. Um, and it really does come off a, as, a, as a school with a strong free speech culture, which I find admirable. But the, because they don't actually promise f- uh, free speech, like I said, you wouldn't have a legal recourse if you got in trouble for your uh, speech there. That's all that all that term means. All right, Kendall nine eleven on X asks, "What is free speech like in high school and elementary schools? Is that a big concern?" Uh, free speech has been in trouble in high school and elementary school for quite some time. Um, it's it's it, it, it's interesting though. Um, uh, the there's been a lot of misunderstanding of like whose free speech rights matter the most in 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 K through twelve. Um, we, we wrote a big article called uh, 13 things to know about the divisive concept bills, which was the most read thing on the fire website a couple of years ago, which I still think is, I, I still think is quite good parsing through this. Um, there's been an argument, you know, uh, I, I, I mentioned the stop woke act in, um, uh, in Florida. Uh, but sometimes when people know that we oppose that, they'll see some of these laws that apply to K through 12 curriculum and say, well, surely you oppose these as well. It's like, no, the, the, if it's a public school and it's mandatory and my kids, you know, my kids go to uh, actually public schools uh, where I live. Um, of course, there's going to be democratic oversight of it. You don't want a situation in which parents have no say so in something that they're paying for and, and are forced to go to. Um, so having a dem- you know, democratic uh, uh, role for deciding what curriculum is, is, in, in my opinion, appropriate, unless and until you actually end up in a situation where it's not mandatory and you're not paying for it. Although I do, by the way, mention in the book that uh, by the time I was done with this book, I'm like, OK, I'm also pro vouchers at this point. <laughs> like, I, 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 I've definitely come around to that argument. So, you know, uh, so is my co-author. So when it comes to K through 12 teachers uh, speech on the job, that's considered they don't really have like strong free speech rights. They're supposed to teach what the curriculum says off the job. It's a little different. Um, but the main free speech actors in K through 12 are the students and the parents. And, it, and of course, as you go up, uh, as you go down in age, the argument for greater regulation became, is considered more compelling. But as you get up through high school, you know, like the, the, there are some good decisions on the books that actually indicate that high schoolers do have uh, free speech rights. Um, and we've seen a lot of abuses of those cases. Though. We, we have a particularly ridiculous case. And uh, we it it's. You would think after doing this 22 years that nothing would surprise me anymore, but thankfully, sometimes we will just have that uh, these utterly ridiculous cases that are both horrifying but kind of funny. And this is a case where a student who uh, he put, um, uh, what's it called, eye black or face black, like the stuff that football players use to put under their eyes. Anti-reflective, yeah. Yeah, and he had about, you know, he had maybe about this much uh, on it for like a homecoming thing. And he got brought up on charges of being in blackface. And if you could see this picture, it's like, no, like, like that's not like the, 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 you get the impression that he covered his whole body. And it. it's like, no, it's just obviously eye black. It's just, the thing that football players wear. Um, and we're, you know, we're fighting that case out right now. Um, and we you see ridiculous cases of limitations on high school students right all the time. Oh, another case that we have is a is a Let's Go Brandon T-shirt. Um, where, uh, you know, shirts with slogans were allowed at this particular high school, but they um, went after a kid for having a a shirt that said, let's go Brandon on it. And the argument was, well, let's go Brandon is a reference 
to rude words. And it's like, no, no, no. You, you can't have a rule that something that makes you think about rude words um, it, it, it is actually banned at this particular school. So the, the state of, of, of free speech in high school is not great, to be honest. Um, but I am excited that because FIRE has expanded and we don't just do yeah. um, uh, higher education anymore, we have actually a lot of we have a number of fun lawsuits there. And if and if you know high school students who are getting in trouble for their free speech, you know, bring, bring it to the fire.org. All right. In the few minutes we have less left, you have a great section at the end of the book, uh, which is what we can do about it. So uh, I don't know if you want to talk um, either about some of the advice that you have for parents or what it means to foster a um, free speech culture at uh, corporations, anything that you'd like to touch on there with some sure. of the advice? Um, well, um, we've expanded on some of that. Uh, again, at the fire.org, we have a list of 10 things that every university president can do that we think are common sense to improve the free speech climate on their campuses. It's, get, it's getting some nice pickup. Um, obviously, I think the, 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 the strongest reform needs to be uh, in our approach to higher ed, which we've talked about. But partially because we do think that this is such a difficult problem, we spend a third of the book talking about it, and we start first with parenting, um, you know, about how to raise kids. And of course, you know, parents are always like, how do I keep my kids from being a um, uh, from being canceled? I'm like, honestly, the better, better question is, how do you keep your kids from being cancelers? How do mm -hmm. you have kids who will stand up for their friends um, and will have their back uh, when the cancel mob comes for them? Uh, and and that's something that I think that uh, te teaching some amount of bravery in a time of cowardice, you know, it, 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 it is essential. Um, as far as uh, your listeners who are um, uh, business leaders, we have a chapter called How to Keep Your Corporation Out of the Culture War, which we really recommend. I, Height and I, when we did a talk about this, was horrified to see, you know, people in aerospace raising their heads saying that they're having, you know, for, forgive the expression, wokeness problems among their uh, uh, among their staff. Um, and we advocate everything from, you know, expanding your idea of diversity, you know, uh, making sure that our ridiculous over-dependence on, um, on, on what I sometimes derisively call the fancies, the, the, the fanciest schools is, 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 I think, harmful. But also you have to be really sure that you're not hiring cancelers. You're not hiring the kind of people who elite colleges tend to produce who will show up mm -hmm. and be like, by the way, if I'm working here, you have to, you know, take a pro-Palestinian standpoint publicly. And by the way, the, that IT guy who seems vaguely Trumpy, he's got to go. You don't mm -hmm. want to work with people who uh, cannot stomach being around people they disagree with like the, the, they can be so destructive to an organization so i really recommend the, ch the the chapter on how to keep your corporation out of the, the culture war and lastly i we we um kind of sketch it out but i have it in much greater um uh, detail uh principles for k-12 through reform um that rather than just having these because even though the the the, the divisive concept bills are directed at k-12 through I, I think they're constitutional. I think that they focus on what they don't want people teaching. What I think would be better would be have a positive vision of ideals um, that are incompatible with some of the uh, the more reductive identity politics, for example, and, and more of the, um, uh, the, 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 the what we call in coddling the American mind, the common enemy identity politics that's so toxic. 
Well, this is great stuff, everyone. Uh, it's the canceling of the American mind. Cancel culture undermines um, trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution. So highly recommend. Also has a great audible version. Uh, which read, is read, read by my co-author. That's right. So, yeah, she's the um, best. Fantastic. And congratulations on the expansion at FIRE. And um, just thank you for all of the phenomenal work, Greg. This has been really terrific. Real pleasure chatting with you. Uh, and thanks to all of you who joined us. Thanks for your great questions. Um, if you enjoy these podcasts, if you enjoy the work of the Atlas Society, we have just a few more days of the year. So perhaps you'll consider making your first time tax-deductible donation to the Atlas Society. If you are a first-time donor, your $5, $10 will be matched. You can go to atlassociety.org slash donate to do that. And then please be sure to join us next week. Um, we are going to talk to someone who is uh, no stranger to cancel culture, Dr. Robert Malone, father of uh, mRNA vaccines, is going to join us to talk about his book, Lies My Government told me. So we'll see you then. Thanks.